The workload of Mao Zong students is three times as heavy as it is in other schools. The number of practice tests students are required to complete in one year is what students in other schools do in three years. To accomplish this, students are required to get up by 6 a.m., be in the classroom by 6.30 a.m., and finish the day around 10.30 p.m. when they are released, with homework and preparation still to do for the next day. The concept of the typical week does not apply. A week here lasts nine days. On the 10th day come the weekly exams. This is the hell to heaven, one student said. Welcome to W5H. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. A podcast where we explore ideas through books and discussion. I'm one of your co-hosts, Luki Danukaryanto. And I'm your other co-host, David Shu. Let's crack those books open and get started. All right, we're back for another episode of W5H. I'm here with my co-host, Luki Danukaryanto. How are you doing, Luki? Phenomenal as always, Dave. Great, great. So I'm excited because I really enjoyed this month's book. And I don't know if it gets us closer to answering the question of what's wrong with education, but we will we will discuss it and try to get there. Well, you're presuming that we'll get an answer throughout this whole thing and, and <laughs> if there even is an answer. But yeah, I found that this was a, an easier read than some of the other ones as well. <laughs> so... This week, we read a book called Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Dragon by Yong Zhao. And it's a book about education in China. I mean, that's the dragon that they're alluding to in the title. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I thought it would be an interesting thing to discuss because, you know, we're here in the West. We hear a lot about Asian education. We hear a lot about China as a whole. It's a scary country. It's a great country. I mean, there's all sorts of feedback that we get about China. But one thing that we've heard about China from here in North America is that Chinese schooling is strong and right. effective, right? That's, that's, that isn't really debated too much in Western circles because at the West, we're always trying to reform our education system. We're trying to, you know, get our math standards up to Asian standards. I grew up in a household where, you know, that was an overwhelming message. Mm -hmm. And this book tells us some of that is true. Not all of it is true. So maybe Luca, you can take us on a quick synopsis of what, Yong Zhao is talking about in this book. Yeah, so maybe a little bit on, on Yong Zhao first. So uh, I think he did his education in China and, and presumably went through a version of that system. And that system has actually evolved over the years. So uh, mm -hmm. he might not have gone through exactly the, the version that uh, is outlined in the book, but he was educated in China, but eventually made it to the U.S. and did uh, a lot of his graduate studies there, master's and PhD uh, as, as well, uh, all in the U.S. And now he's the Foundation Distinguished Professor in the School of Education at the University of Kansas. And mm -hmm. he's uh, done a whole bunch of other uh, degrees, education leadership in, in Melbourne, Australia, a uh, bunch of presidential chairs and this and that. So he has a lot of credentials and accolades to his name. Uh, and, and he's won uh, numerous awards for career education, early career education, and uh, has wrote a lot of books of which uh, one is uh, Who's Afraid of the Big, Big Bad Dragon, which we read. Um, and as we get into the book, I mean, the book is essentially a recount um, of the uh, Chinese education system, right? So as, as David alluded to, uh, a lot of the, the West kind of looks in awe at the Chinese system. All the students are so diligent. They're eagerly going through their exams, all of them taking their tests and doing all their homework and, and uh, getting into a frenzy, having to uh, try to get uh, to the top of the class, that sort of thing, right? Um, mm. But uh, as, as the book kind of outlines, it's not exactly as it seems. At, at a superficial level, uh, that, is, that is very true. Um, but at the uh, kind of underlying level, it's focused on a couple of things uh, that we are kind of focusing on. So things like uh, math and, and education, and uh, sorry, math and English, um, and uh, some of the other scores on what's uh, on a, a PISA test, uh, and I forget what PISA actually stands for, but it's kind of like the the uh, global indicator of uh, which schools rate highest in terms of education. And uh, what the the book uh, recounts is that well, it's actually not the best um, 
measure in terms of educational success and things like that, right? And uh, going through it also talks about um, concepts in terms of, well, what sort of education are you getting? Are you educating people to become an employee or an entrepreneur? Um, and that would be, um, yeah, kind of a high level synopsis. So it walks through like kind of a, a day in the life of or a, a journey in the life of a Chinese student, which I found quite interesting. And based on the, the intro of the book, <laughs> that's kind of the, the uh, what, what did they say? That the, the path from the, the hell to get to heaven, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, and and, and at the, the heaven at the end is presumably a, a good job uh, in kind of the Chinese government, which is kind of touted as, as kind of the, uh, epitomes of career success in the Chinese system. So, yeah, that's a kind of a brief synopsis of the book. What what, what right. else do you have to add, Dave? Um, I mean, the book is pretty all-encompassing. It's it it's this look at the Chinese education system, not just what the education system is today, but how it evolved to the mm -hmm. current form that it's taken and how it has roots in the imperial education system, you know, going back hundreds of years to the civil servants exams. The I think it was called the Keju that the students had to take back, you know, under the late Qing dynasty mm -hmm. and how that gradually evolved this society that was so obedient and, you know, serious about taking these exams in a way that Westerners find kind of odd. The book also talks about specifically about why. So the, the book's other key thrust is that it's written towards Westerners, mm -hmm. right? Because in the West, there are a lot of people, surprisingly, I didn't really even know about this until I read it, but it seems to make sense. A lot of Westerners always point at China and some other countries like Finland and, and Canada, shockingly, as places where education is very, very strong. Mm -hmm. And so there's this idea in certain parts of America where educators are saying, we need to copy the Chinese model. We need to adopt the Chinese model. We need our students to get as good as the Chinese at math and science. Right. And this book is specifically t directed at these people to say, wait, hold your horses. The Chinese system isn't all it's cracked up to be. Here is some of the darker side of the Chinese education system before you decide to fully embrace it, which is very bizarre turn. Because as I read the book, you know, as I started to read the book, I did not expect the book to be directed at Americans who are loving the Chinese system and actually pointing out that many Chinese educators want their own system to change. They're not happy with it. Yeah, I think that was a bit surprising to me, but I think it's a welcome um, kind of challenge to the system where and probably doesn't help us in terms of our quest and <laughs> finding a good education <laughs> model, uh, but it at least it provides a, a little bit more uh, color in and around that. So um, right. I guess I, I, I'd want to hear your story about your, your education because you kind of grew up or started uh, out in, in that system or, or, or did you? <laughs> and, and, and what a was kind of, kind of your experience with all that? I mean, we've talked about this on other episodes a little bit. I grew up in Canada for the most part. I did spend one year, um, my half of my senior kindergarten year, into the summer, so almost eight or nine months, in Taiwan, which is different from China, but not that different in a way. I don't remember much of it because I was quite young at the time, and then came back to North America and then spent the rest of my childhood growing up in North America. But my parents would always tell me about, you know, what the education system in Taiwan was like and this this would be the Taiwan education that they had mm -hmm. the basic takeaways from what they told me and what they tried to impart on me was that in Asia people work hard there's no room for not working I mean this is a narrative that they're giving me right so sure. people are working like crazy um, the work is very rote there's a lot of memorization there's not a lot of room for creativity but you don't need that you just need to memorize and if you can make it through the early years, like elementary school, middle school, if you can get into a top high school, you know, it's really difficult to do that. Like the way Taiwan was set up was that, you know, the high school entrance exam was like a life or death thing. You know, it could really go a long ways into determining your future. And then again, it would happen again at the end of high school. You'd have this life or death university entrance exam that would basically determine your fate for forever. So, you know, in our family history, the story was that my dad, when he got to the end of high school, he did poorly on that university entrance exam. Ooh. And so he could have gone to like, you know, a second tier, third tier, whatever university in Taiwan, but he decided not to. He sat out a year and stayed at home and just studied 
right? And studied and studied and studied. And at that, in those days, you could do that. That was one of the options. If, if you saw your life floating away before your eyes, you could resit the exam. And then the second time he did it, he scored well enough to get into top university in, mm-hmm. tai, in Taipei, National Taiwan University, and then ends up getting a degree from there. So it was really this whole idea that your life is based on tests and your mm-hmm. life is based on test scores. Like that was really inundated to me. But I grew up in North America, so I would sometimes ask my parents, like, you know, what's the education system like there? How does it compare? Because my parents watched us grow up, but at the same time, they had lived through the other education system. So they would always tell me about how, well, you know, certainly Taiwan, strong at math, strong at these rote <laughs> skills. But when you get to the higher levels, the creativity, the ability to problem solve, the ability to think of ways, new ways to solve things, that stuff is missing. And as I went through my own education career, you know, in Canada, and I, I met people from overseas and, you know, worked with students now in my life as a doctor, I mean, it's kind of true. I can kind of see a lot of those things that my parents told me seem to hold true. So I was very interested to read this book because I didn't know much about how schooling actually happens in China, right? I mean, first of all, I knew a little bit about Taiwan, which is not exactly the same. So, but I presume that some of the things hold true. So it was really eye-opening to read about this. The other thing I will say is that I did know that even up until fairly recently, the importance placed on the rote skills in Taiwan and and and. and Therefore, like I seemed, I, I personally, you know, imagine that all of Asia is kind of like this. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Korea, Japan, Singapore, China, Hong Kong, they're all like this is that in Taiwan, you know, you, you go to school for like eight or nine hours and then you would finish school and go to a tutorial school. Like you'd exit school and then you'd go into a private tutorial class. Right. And, you know, you, you hear about kids here today in Toronto, you know, at the end of the day, they go to do Kumon. Like I think you and I talked about it right. you know, they go to spirit of math i mean that's like one hour twice a week at the most or 45 minutes or something right like in taiwan these kids would finish school and then they go to this tutorial school and then they're there until 10 30 11 o'clock just like it's mentioned in introduction I, I remember talking to my cousin about it and just being blown away like i could barely you know handle going to my high school and it used to end at 2 40 in the afternoon i was like i couldn't wait to get home yeah. right i can't imagine the idea that then you'd stay at school for another round of school until 10 o'clock right and my cousin would tell me like yeah he, you know you do tutorials you'd you'd brush up on subjects and then you'd participate in some extracurriculars like i remember him telling me he was in the marching band and blah 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 and i was like what about going home and having dinner with your mom and pop <laughs> right yeah. but people don't do that and it was just this and I guess mom and pop are actually probably working, right? Like, like in these countries, a lot of times the parents aren't even coming home until super late at night. Right. You're basically just sleeping under the same roof, but not, you know, functionally together as a yeah. group. And it's just a very different experience. So not just the education, but the culture of it is very different. And I felt like as I read this book, it brought out a lot of these themes and showed us how different it is. Right. And I, you know, this whole idea that we could somehow take the best of that culture and adopt it here in North America. It's like, no, we can't. It's an almost no thanks. I don't even want to see that here as a parent or an educator. Yeah. And I think uh, a lot of that is not necessarily for the kind of rote skills, but also the, the habits and the kind of discipline that you need to have in order to take that because if you can imagine someone who has to work what was the introduction said like a nine day week and then 10 the day uh 10 you get Mm -hmm. exams and then you get a day off that sort of thing Mm -hmm. Uh, imagine taking that work ethic and then putting it into like the north american system but uh to to your point um like that is uh, a lot of work ethic devoid of any kind of creativity or spontaneity and, and like kind of that higher level thinking, uh, is that, is that going to be helpful? But I do find that that students, when they come here, I mean, they're uh, on easy street for the most part, right? Especially on things like, like math and science, where they, they've been drilled into it uh, so much. Like I know a lot of the friends that I've had who came from a, a, like a Chinese educated background and they come here, they're flying through uh, all the math courses, right? And, mm-hmm. and a lot of the science courses as well. And, and my wife's a teacher and, and she can see the difference as well. Now for some of the other ones, well, the skills then aren't necessarily uh, kind of touted uh, over overseas. It's, it's a little bit more challenging for them because they're not expected to, to write a, a story <laughs> or a paragraph mm-hmm. and, and use their creativity in, in this and that, right? 
and myself in, in dealing with a lot of the, the university folks. Um, so, so they are people or there are students who are basically very focused. They, they need that 4.0 right? Uh, that, that perfect grade, because that's what they've always aspired to. Um, yet, they don't realize that a lot of the career and job success is um, doing kind of extracurriculars and networking events and connecting with employers ahead of graduating and things like that. So they end up graduating with a, a 4.0 with an amazing uh, degree and all that sort of stuff, but they can't get a job <laughs> because they don't have skills uh, mm. and, and experiences. Whereas someone with a 3 point something has uh, been a president of a club or a director of this and that part-time job and some volunteering and this and that and they're able to secure something a little more easily than uh, someone who has focused their entire uh, life on on uh, education so i found that a, a very interesting kind of uh, i don't know perspective on the value that's placed on on the system so i, I think in china it's a little bit different where the, the fact that you do take a test and do place well that almost guarantees you a high level position Whereas uh, in, in the Canadian system, at least it, from my experience, that 4.0 matters less and less compared to uh, some of the other things that people would, would look at. Now, just to refresh the audience's memory, like you're, you work as a career coach, but you're mostly working with university age or older people, correct? Right, right. So young uh, professionals, so I would say kind of 18 to 35, so 18 to 22 is kind of that university college uh, age range, and mm-hmm. then kind of 22 to uh, whatever 30 is kind of that young adult, and then uh, anything beyond that is more kind of getting promoted, uh, settling down your career, trying to find that that thing that fulfills you and all that. So yeah, I wouldn't necessarily deal with, uh, I guess, the focus of, of, of this uh, book, which would be more the, the, the K to 12 uh, folks, where, where it's, it's that part up to getting into university that is kind of the key differentiator and that leads you all to to success because once you get into that top level school that almost guarantees you like a top level job which basically means that you have uh, a great career for the rest of your life well this book does talk a bit about higher education like post-secondary education in china also right there's a there's a bunch of chapters where they talk about you know research and how it's conducted universities and all this stuff now in your experience, I mean, you know, anecdotally, you've worked with students and some of them are from China and through people you've met. Is there anything about what the book is saying that really rings true? And is there anything that rings false from what you've seen? So for me, I think based on my experience, a lot of it does ring true. Like like I mentioned, those folks that are so focused on the schooling, they end up with a 4.0. They they basically are studying. They're, they're not going out. They're not taking advantage of the student clubs or the, the programming and the job search and the career centers and all that sort of stuff. And they graduate it uh, with, with uh, an amazing mark, right? And uh, f- a lot of different awards and scholarships from an academic sense, but they're not employable. Here's a here's a question for you. We talked about, you know, limitless mind, Joe Bowler, mm-hmm. and how the way we're learning mathematics is wrong. We should be moving away from rote mathematics and moving towards deeper understanding, you know, slowly, you know, making students understand the nuance of mathematics. Mm-hmm. This book doesn't talk a lot about how math is taught, but I can envision from what it's inferring that you know, mathematics is taught in a very rigid, rote manner with a ton of memorization and students just have to memorize this stuff. And, and you know, that's how I learned my times tables, right? Like a, it's, it's got to come out of your mouth like a machine gun fire, right? right. I, I feel like that's the Asian way. What would you say when you have to contrast the Joe Bowler way of learning with this Chinese way of learning? Because the Chinese way, as you said, very effective all these guys come over or these people come over from china and they're really good at math so could we just say let's just do the chinese way for math you know make kids do three times as much math and they're just going to be better yeah i would say that up to a certain level that would probably be advised right because the other question is how far do you actually have to learn and use and, and understand math in order to be successful in most career paths right so like the, the calculus that you learn in grade 12, right? And, and even in first, second, third year for a lot of the professional degrees, 
do you actually use any of it on a regular mm-hmm. day-to-day basis, right? And how many people, um, like, like you're, you're in, in a doctor in a highly technical profession, right? So um, technical, not in like technology, but but like in, you have to know what you're doing, right? Did you, do you use much of your calculus or, or, or uh, all well, those higher level maths, right? So I would say that maybe up to grade, I don't know what it is, maybe grade eight, Right, so all that stuff where um, you, you could basically use that on a day-to-day basis, uh, and then it's a matter of figuring out, okay, based on what you want to end up doing later on, then you should be learning the the stuff maybe in the Joe Bowler way, um, call it grade nine in high school, <laughs> and later on, uh, it, it could be something like that where there's a hybrid. Um, but I do feel that there is probably some merit in in having that. Uh, uh, automaticity, <laughs> being automatic, whatever that word is. Uh, How about automa- automaton method? Let's we'll call it that way. It's a little uh, derogatory, though. <laughs> okay, sure. Um, but I think there's some some value in in that, and I think we we talked about that in in, in one of the previous episodes. Um, but yeah, not all the way to to from K to twelve, maybe K to halfway through. <laughs> right. That and, sounds and reasonable. So yeah. so you're proposing that. K to eight, maybe K know, to six, K to <laughs> six, basic arithmetic. Yeah. We should get really strong in it, right? We should be able to do basic algebra problems. We can, yeah. you know, divide a bill easily yeah. amongst a group. Your of machine people. gun multiplication, I think is fine. Right. But yeah, then beyond that, like, like to do like quadratic equations in, in, in your head. Like, I, I don't know the purpose of that. Right. Like, maybe for certain uh, fields, then, then yes, you do. Now the question is like, do you have to commit in grade seven <laughs> that you want to be an, an engineer or something like that, right? Uh, and maybe it, it, maybe you do. Uh, and, but and even if still. you are an engineer, still a lot of the math is superfluous. Exactly. That's what I was about to, to say. So, so yeah. So, like, how much of it is there? And then the other part is uh, what the book is also saying is, is the, the math, the science that you're testing. Uh, are all those the key indicators of, of, of what someone would need to be successful in their future, Right, so they focus mm-hmm. on a few uh, s- slim, uh, a few subjects, um, and there, there's nothing that says that by by isolating these uh, subjects, uh, the people that have the higher end of these uh, subjects will become more successful. Okay, so you've proposed that we get really strong at math, and that's okay up until grade six or eight, something around right? there, right? So you're proposing that for eight or ten years that we take North American kids and give them really rigorous math so that they can do machine gun, you know, multiplication tables and division backwards. Question though, there is an opportunity cost to this, right? Mm -hmm. It takes time to build up this skill, especially Mm -hmm. if you want every kid in the class to be able to do this, right? Which is essentially what's happening in Hong Kong and Taiwan and China. Every kid can do this basic math pretty well, but at the expense of other things. Right. So let's say that even if you and I accept that this is okay, that amount of math and being fast at it is good. My challenge is one, this basic math is easily replicated on a calculator. Like I can Mm -hmm. carry a little calculator that costs, you know, a dollar, right? If I don't even have my cell phone on me, that can do all these things instantaneously. Mm -hmm. Right. That's one. Secondly, the amount of time it's going to take for me to, you know, learn this stuff is time I could be building my English skills, building my art skills, painting. It's time I could be exercising, right? For heaven's sake. You know, is it worth it? Because because if we say math is important and we apply this much to math, you know, there's an opportunity cost. And then you're going to say, well, science is also important and English is important. And we're going to pick a whole list of these subjects. They're all going to be important. We're all, we're going to be doing rigorous rote drilling to build the foundational building blocks for all of it. Where do we stop? Well, so so I, I didn't exactly say that. I would say that uh, you probably need to learn uh, math up to like the grade six level, but I don't necessarily think that has to be done from like K to six. Like it might be that you learn it up until grade ten, right? And you stretch it out so that you have the opportunity to you to. Uh, learn other things, right? Because I, I don't mm, feel okay. like the higher level. So you can math, take twenty years to do six years worth of math, something like that, right? And again, sure. I, I haven't thought through like this entire curriculum for, for the K to twelve <laughs> yet. But but if I were to say like, yeah, math probably wouldn't be on the top uh, of of anything. Just the concepts, really, right? So the the whole point of that machine gun stuff. To your point of the the two dollar calculator in my pocket, why do I need it, right? As long as I understand what 
uh, eight times eight means and, and whatever divided by a half, that sort of thing, fractions and things like that, right? If I understand those concepts, I can uh, like machine gun it with, with my fingers on a, on a calculator pretty quickly, right? Um, but then to your point about like English is important, science is important, yeah, sure, there is. And and I think one of the, the books that we have on the docket is is taking a look at like the, the, the Finnish or one of the Nordic education systems where they don't actually teach things by subject. They teach things by uh, like kind of topical area where mm. you might learn about like the dinosaurs, but you learn about like the the ratio of, uh, I don't know, the long neck dinosaurs versus like the, the carnivorous ones or whatever. And by doing that, you learn math, right? You learn mm. science, you learn English, and you can write about that. But it's, it's right. less about uh, individual subjects than it is about kind of uh, topic areas and things like that, right? So um, I, I'd be curious to, to kind of uh, take a look at that because I don't know too much about that system. And I believe that they've been highly touted as, as a yes. very effective system. So I, I, my version would probably be uh, include some of that as well. But I do feel that, that up to a certain level, like things like math, things like science, uh, everyone should know th those things. But again, to your point about like, uh, 20 years to learn uh, eight years of, of, of work so that it's spread out. Uh, I, I do like the Joe Boulder approach where there's different ways to, to learn, right? Because mm. a lot of the education system is kind of back in the day where um, it was before like the printing press where there's only one version of a book and the, the pro professor or the teacher at the front had to uh, kind of be the owner of it and, and curator and, and basically say it out loud. But then it's kind of a, a moot point where everyone has a copy of it. Everyone has it digitally and multiple copies and all that sort of stuff. So we don't have those same sorts of limits, but we're still living off of that same kind of uh, paradigm, right? So now we, we've all lived through like COVID and does everybody want to look at a screen <laughs> to do all these things? Maybe that's not the best way of, of learning either, but there's probably a good combination where people need to start rethinking about how it's done. Um, so that there is like kind of the, the, the multi-sensory and different ways of approaching it. Like you, we talked about number sense on the other side, right? So I, I think there has to be that version of it, like the for science, for, for English, for, for sociology and, and, and all those different subjects that we have to go through. Okay. Point taken. Now leads me to the next logical question, which is, and the book talks about this. The book says that the West really regards China as being strong because they do well with their PISA scores. And the mm. PISA is measuring their scores in three subjects, science, math, and reading. Mm. This is one of the fundamental problems with the PISA score is that it's only limited to these three subjects. There are other subjects out there, right? Mm -hmm. You and I have, you know, we, we're kind of in agreement that math doesn't need to be emphasized to this degree. So we can dial it down on math. But what subjects would we include in a better education system? You know, what are the subjects that we think are that important? Because a lot of them are important and we think math should be de-emphasized. And I guess science may be de-emphasized to some degree and even reading maybe de-emphasize some degree. So what are the things that need to be emphasized more to create a more balanced, you know, population of citizens? Well, I would put something like human interaction and relationships <laughs> in there, right? <laughs> How to deal with uh, other people and dating, uh, uh, you mean dating? <laughs> what? Dating, 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 human relationships. No, 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 not not necessarily like the significant other, but like the the peer, the, the bully in the schoolyard, right? Your your best friend. Like how 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 does one become a best friend versus a bully, right? What <laughs> what is the difference between the, the two of them, right? Uh, how how do you how do you interact? Um, those types of things, uh, any sort of like kind of social graces uh, and, and things like that, right? And and mm. a lot of that starts with uh, knowing yourself, right? And and understanding who you are, if you're confident. Um, so it. it I don't you, know if there could be a you course just, called self-confidence, right? You just created a course that does not exist in any major education system in the world. A hundred percent. Quite possibly. <laughs> Quite hundred percent. Right. Which is why I'm on the journey that I'm on, right? Because I want to create these things. And like all, all those uh, skills, they're, they're called soft skills. Uh, and, and the mm. main reason, because it, the understanding was that you couldn't teach them. But I think uh, science has actually evolved to the point where I believe that you can with a lot of these things, right? They, they've actually figured out different skills and different ways of approving uh, these, these sorts of things, right? So like something like empathy, right? Um, apparently mm. it's something that you have, you, you don't. But apparently one way of training empathy is to read very rich fiction because an author, what they're trying to do is get you into someone else's shoes and have you take their um, perspective, right? 
Mm. Well, that's empathy. Right? So just read a couple of really good books and, and then kind of recount that. And that teaches you empathy. And then that uh, lends it to, to like human relations. And it's oftentimes, um, if you actually look at the, the most successful people in the world, they're not necessarily the, the smartest academically at anything, but they're often the ones that are able to kind of motivate people around them, connect with other people and surround themselves with a, a great team in order to make things happen, right? So if, if, if I were to put a, a subject in there, it would be something like, like I don't know, social dynamics, human dynamics, like self-confidence, empathy, all that sort of thing. Yeah. Teamwork, things like that. Things yeah, like that, right? teamwork, leadership and things like that. Yeah, right. Kudos to you because uh, I was not expecting that answer. <laughs> Well, you don't give me enough credit, Dave. Jeez. I should have. I should have. As you're saying it, I'm like, okay, this makes perfect sense. It's too easy for you because that's right up your alley. But no, I think that makes sense. Is there other anything else that you would throw in there? Like soft skills as a thing that, you know, we should be emphasizing, I think, on both sides. I, I don't think the West does it well. I don't think the East does it well. Right, exactly. Um, so as a global thing, definitely. But how about other more traditional, you know, subject areas or, or, or anything else you can think of? Well, I mean, like, for me, it's it's things like like time management, even, right? Mm. Um, some something some things like that. Like, can you even get stuff done? Um, even knowing how to take care of your 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 health, right? Something like uh, are yes, you sleeping well? You exercise, yeah. As a medical doctor, that sort of thing, right? But even the most fundamental things, like uh, like health, is not hard, right? It's uh, sleep well, uh, eat kind of real food, and exercise. <laughs> that's basically all you need to do to get healthy. But the problem is people don't, right? And and right. The, the, the challenge is, well, why not, right? Why don't people exercise? Why don't people sleep enough? Why don't people eat like healthy and real food, right? That's the other um, part well, of, I, of things. I told my daughter, like she brought her report card home and I'm like, I told you, phys ed is the most important subject <laughs> in school. And she's like, what what are you talking about like i i don't know how she's already adopted the asian mindset where phys ed is like something you don't regard seriously but math sure. is yeah my fault i must have inundated her with this <laughs> but you know personally speaking i feel like phys ed is probably one of the most important things that mm -hmm. anyone could learn as a student like this idea that exercising regular and taking care of your health like that applies to every single person yep on the face of the earth and yet we don't emphasize it at all. You know, most students think of phys ed as just a chore. Mm -hmm. In a lot of places, like in Ontario, where we are, I don't even know what the rule is now, but back in our day, you could just do grade 10 phys ed and then you'd never have to do it again, right? And for many people, when I see them in a doctor's office, I can easily imagine that since grade 10 phys ed, they haven't done anything <laughs> that raised their heart rate or made them break a sweat ever again, right? And it's sad. It's a sad testament that this most important thing that probably could benefit our society more than anything else we don't emphasize and we're emphasizing nonsense in a way like everyone needs to understand sine cosine tangent like these right. weird things that have almost no bearing on real life and we can't you know get people to exercise 30 minutes a day right, right. we don't instill the love of like physical activity in people yeah. easily it makes no sense yeah, and, and maybe it's taking like the Joe Bowler limitless mind and, and applying that same sort of method of teaching uh, to, to phys ed and not just Absolutely. math, right? Absolutely. So, you see how many students hate phys ed, yeah. right? You know, they're a little overweight or they're not the fastest, right? They, they're afraid to throw the ball because they're going to get laughed at, so mm -hmm. they never do it. Like that, that, all that stuff is in Joe Bowler when it comes to math. Phys ed, it's like 20 times worse. Right. But but because we don't emphasize phys ed, there's no Joe Bowler writing a book telling us that we really should really emphasize it, right? Yeah. Anyways, we're way off our topic, <laughs> but I think actually this is the stuff that's bang on. Like schools should be emphasizing this. If we want to fix education, phys ed is something that should be emphasized. Math de-emphasized to some degree. Yeah, and and maybe not like de-emphasized to zero, but yes, definitely to, to a lesser degree and, and things like education, those soft skills. And soft skills is such a, a broad term, right? So mm -hmm. again, that those social relationships, things like um, even uh, kind of self-management, self right? So that whole kind of time management piece, like habits and motivation and procrastination, all those sorts of things, right? Mm -hmm. If you can get past it through those, then, then you're development just compounds on itself uh, a skill that i feel should be taught is uh, learning to learn 
right? Mm. That's that's not a skill that that's top. Like it's a meta it's a meta skill that should, right? So things like memory techniques, and I know in in previous episodes or different podcasts that we recorded, we tried to do some of that. Mm-hmm. But Im- imagine you learned that when you were uh, in grade six or six years old, right? And then you could mm-hmm. figure some of that. I'm, I'm trying to get my kids to do that. I don't know if I, how successful I am in getting them to do it. But uh, <laughs> if, if they could, it would be so uh, impactful and, and so much easier to, to get through. Uh, it could be the equivalent of your kind of like uh, machine gun multiplication, but for right. every single thing, right? It's just kind of the, the multiplier. So um, those types of things would be kind of the, the ones that I would include. Um, and part of it is also the um, the, the interactions, right? So uh, I think there's a lot of kind of individualistic pieces, whereas I, I believe, again, in, in the Nordic and, and the, the Finnish like, uh, systems, they tend to be um, a little more like collaborative, right, where there's more mm-hmm. emphasis on kind of like the group um, projects and, and community work and stuff like that versus uh, everything's done by yourself. Now, we do have some group projects here and there, but th- that's more the minority of things that are done versus right. I believe it's a little bit more on the majority. But again, we'll have to dive into that a little bit before we kind of make uh, comments on that. Sure. Now, one one comment that the book makes, like in the latter part of the book, that I found very interesting, was the author kind of talks about education from the standpoint of an entrepreneur model mm. of learning versus an employee model of learning. Mm-hmm. And loosely, what that means is that the West is doing more of an entrepreneurial model, right? We're in the here in the West, we're trying to encourage people to be creative and think on their feet. So the highest level of that is starting your own company, you know, mm-hmm. figuring things out on the fly. Whereas the Asian model, the Eastern model, is a little bit more focused on the employee model, like get your rote tasks done, be good at taking orders, yes ma'am, no ma'am. And that model seems to be good at grooming people to work in industry, right? To be, you know, effective worker bees in mm-hmm. a colony. I actually found that a very interesting way of breaking down education and the two different mindsets behind it. I had never really thought of education in exactly those terms. But one issue I had is that in the book, the author really starts to say they're really pushing in favor of the entrepreneur model. They mm-hmm. feel like the West is very good at this and that the, the East is actually trying to adopt principles of the West to be able to do this stuff. And I wasn't so confident that that's actually the right approach because I feel like the world should have entrepreneurs but should also have employees. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I would agree with that, right? Because if everybody was an entrepreneur, I don't think the world would be a a very successful place. So you definitely need entrepreneurs and employees. Um, But I would also say that I don't know if the West is the model uh, for for the entrepreneurial one, because if you talk to uh, Mr. John Gatto from the (laughs) Weapons of Mass Instruction, it was all about the employee, where where like, uh, um, let's control these folks, let's turn them into mass market uh, consumerism and and, and turn them all into people people who buy so uh according to him like we are following into the employee model right the people who are the entrepreneurs are the people who actually broke out of the system right. or, they were the or, ones who are dropped in the middle of the city and had to walk home and all that sort right of stuff. or yeah. ben franklin like these hundred years ago people right. didn't have schooling and that's the that's actually the american you know the inventive spirit of america was founded then not in the current day and age so yeah. much yeah and part of that might be that the maybe not the system itself, but the culture allows for a little bit more of that flexibility where you can kind of go against the grain and start your own thing in that Western tradition. Whereas on the Asian side, like if you're not uh, going to university and then getting a job, everyone looks at you strained. Like what, what are you doing? <laughs> like why, why, why are you even thinking of that? Right. So no, no, their, their good reaction is more along the lines of like, you've just disgraced your entire family. <laughs> We're all going to commit suicide now because of this choice you've made. So you better think twice about it. There, there you go. So, so yeah. And, and, and I agree. I think that is a very interesting distinction where, um, again, I, I don't believe that it necessarily points to the, uh, one way that we have an education system, but it could be both where it's kind of like a, a choose your own adventure to say, Hey, Here's a bunch of skills. Here's a bunch of subjects. Here's a bunch of things that you need to learn uh, as both an, an entrepreneur and an employee. So that's what I would think is kind of those soft skills that are uh, the fundamental that everyone should learn. Now, once mm-hmm. you have those, then if you want to be an engineer, if you want to start your own business, if you want to become an accountant or in, in marketing or, or doctor or whatever, hey, here are these other things that, that you uh, can, can pick as, as well, right? So, um, but the, the challenge is, do you ask someone who's like, 
six years old in grade six <laughs> to make a decision on which one, which path, uh, and, and how early. Because I find that even at, what is it, like 17 or 16, that, that you have to pick which university and, and into the uh, college or, or the next career path that's going to kind of shape your future. Like, do those folks even have the maturity or the understanding of what they want to, to make that choice and, and to have that even sooner? Um, or is it the parents to say, okay, you will now be an, you come from an entrepreneurial family, so therefore you'll be an entrepreneur. You come from an employee family, therefore you'll be an employee. I don't, is it their choice? I, uh, that, that sort of thing that would, would be interesting as a discussion point. I feel like the best option has to include building skills for both sets, right? Like you need yep. entrepreneur skills and you need employee skills because at different times in your life, you're going to need different skills, mm -hmm. right? It's not like you're going to get into one stream and forever always being entrepreneur forever, sure. right? Most likely people will start off as an employee somewhere. You start off at the bottom and work your way up, right? And then at some point you need to turn on the entrepreneur thing if it's in you. Now, it would help if at that point you had some grounding in it, some skills that you could bank on. I think what happens to a lot of people, you know, is you're good at school, you're good at the rote tasks, like you're a really good computer programmer, you think, I got an idea, and then you get to the moment where you're gonna start your company, you realize you know nothing about managing people, you're a disaster with finances, <laughs> you think you know you can outsmart people who've been do or were doing this all day long, and then you get your hide handed to, right? So I feel like, I don't think we can turn it into a mutually exclusive thing and tell students, pick one early. You just need these skills stored in your back pocket the same way we've traditionally said you need multiplication tables stored in your back pocket. Like you need to know how to work with a team. It'll come up sure. again and again. And eventually if you cannot handle it, it will show itself in the trajectory that you end up being on. Yeah, and, and I would say that um, th those skills come out with a bit of exposure, right? So in the theory of school, like a lot of folks will have a 4.0 in, in, in math or whatever subject, but then when they, in, in business, right? And then they mm -hmm. go and start a, their own company. It's totally different, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, so, so maybe what we do is like in grade six, everybody has to start their own lemonade stand. Right. And, 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 and if you do well, if you like the whole process of doing that and, and switch lemonade with whatever it is, right, um, maybe it's a service business, maybe it's a product, maybe it's whatever, and give it a shot. Right. And, and maybe it's not in grade six, maybe it's in grade 12, maybe it's in, in university, but get that exposure and say, hey, what do you think? Are, are you enjoying this? Is this something that, that kind of lights you up? Or mm -hmm. uh, are, are you very risk adverse? Because I know s some folks that uh, with this concept of like the great resignation, People are taking a look at their options. They grew up in a world where everybody was an employee, right? So they have to plug mm -hmm. into the matrix, into the system. But now, right. given all the uncertainty, well, if there's going to be uncertainty anyway, might as well make it my uncertainty <laughs> versus the, the company's uncertainty. So a lot of people are, are, are uh, quitting and, and starting their own side hustle. Now, will they be successful? I, I'm not sure because they, they weren't, to, to your point, kind of groomed with those skills in their back pocket in order to do that. But mm -hmm. uh, maybe if, if they had those uh those tools in their back pocket to, to understand how to run marketing, how to run all these sorts of things, how, how to hire people and all that, um, then they, they would have been exceptional entrepreneurs, but they weren't necessarily uh, kind of given that. And yeah, I, I mean, I know myself, so I started in, on the employee side, I started my own business and uh, I, I often think I should go and get a job <laughs> because it's so much harder, <laughs> so much different. Uh, and I don't know if you ever thought the same because uh, you, you're an entrepreneur. You run your own clinic, your, your own office, right? Uh, um, have you ever thought of just joining someone else and saying, ah, I'd rather have someone else be the boss? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I started off working in a clinic for, you know, a, other doctors or other owners. And I tried to convince myself and I was happy. I was just like, you know, I don't need to deal with these headaches and I'm happy doing what I'm doing. And, you know, I'm well recompensated for what I do anyway. So it wasn't this burning need to even explore the idea. It's only in my in the recent years where we've started becoming an entrepreneur and making mistakes left and right, but also <laughs> sometimes getting some wins here mm -hmm. and there and figuring things out that I realized it's, it's the challenge is the neat, is the neat thing. Mm -hmm. It's not a question of, you know, necessarily being motivated by making more money. It's just being put in the entrepreneurial seat puts you under pressure to learn, adapt. And that's a cool process, mm -hmm. but that may not be for everyone. You know, that's my story to some extent. 
hundred percent. I think it's a spectrum where you have kind of like the uh, risk adverse, which you no know, make me an employee for the rest of my life and give me my my pension and all that sort of stuff, right? And then you have the on the other side is like, no, I never want to work for anybody, and I always want to take <laughs> but, take risk and put it all yeah. online. And then everybody in between, right? And I think most people fall somewhere in between. And then throughout life, during different social situations like you're you're less uh, risk adverse when you start a family and have ki- uh, and have kids right but uh when you first graduate and you have kind of your your mid-20s early 20s whatever it is you have lots of flexibility to do a whole bunch of stuff right and maybe when your kids uh, go off and you're a little bit more financially secure you might go off and do something else as, as well so uh and, and people are at different points at different times their their risk tolerance goes up and down and uh, I think more people should try uh, to at least uh, attempt something like that and see if it works out, right? And, and if it doesn't work out, then yeah, go get a job. That's not a, not a problem. <laughs> I, I don't even think we should pigeonhole these, into, these terms into separate things like entrepreneur Fair. versus employee. Yeah. There's, there's, these two things actually overlap, right? Yep. And it's yep. not to say that, you know, if you're working for somebody else, you can't be an entrepreneur. Like mm. we're talking, what we're talking about is this idea that you're working at your job doing your rote tasks, but maybe, you know, you can think outside the box and solve a problem that the business has in a slightly different way, right? Or you can become, you know, a leader of your team instead of the person at the bottom of the team, right? There might still be multiple levels ahead of you Mm -hmm. and you're not running your own company necessarily, or you're not a captain of a fortune 500 company. But I feel like for each person, we can always look one step ahead. Like there's something we could be doing that's a little different. Right. And maybe a little bit better. And a lot of times we're constrained because we feel like we don't have the skills. And ideally, the education system should be giving people the skills so that we can always look at that next level of where we want to be and try to achieve it. We may not always succeed, but we have some grounding in understanding how to do it. And our education system doesn't always seem to provide that for us. And if we funnel people into employee versus entrepreneur, I feel like we're we're sort of saying there's only one or the other, but these things are happening simultaneously all the time. Yeah, I, I, I would agree where um, the, the concept or the term they use is called an, an intrapreneur, where you're inside mm. a company, but you still have kind of all your entrepreneurial tendencies and, and right. all that, right? And they also have this concept called a, a sidepreneur, right? Where you still go to your job nine to five, but from five to 12, you're, you you start like a YouTube channel or an Amazon dropship business or, or like your Uber driving or whatever it is that you're doing on, on the side, right? So. You know, we're near the end of the episode now. This is a, it's been a very interesting conversation. I have a couple more questions, uh, talking points. Did anything that you read in this book about China sp- surprise you? I'm not sure if I was truly surprised if anything, but just more um, like the detail of it. I was quite, it, it opened my eyes a little bit because, because you hear about it, right? Uh, on this one-off thing, but to, to kind of walk through kind of the stories and how like there are towns and, and cities that are set up to like help people through all this. And this is like hundreds of thousands, if, if not, I don't know if there are a million uh, people in, in the, those cities, but that's how ingrained it is into the into the system. Uh, uh, and and uh, like they, they deliver food to the to the dorms and stuff and nobody's out, uh, out past like 10 p.m. or something like that. And like people <laughs> yes. will be wandering the streets and, and making sure that you go back to your dorm rooms and studying and all that sort of stuff. Like the mm-hmm. just the sheer scale of it, I, I was quite surprised of on, on that side. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, again, you, you hear stories of it, but to have it kind of written down like th- there's like the whole uh, economy is set up in, in that way is, is quite quite interesting and, and eye-opening for me so what, what was surprising mm-hmm. for, for you for me i actually we didn't even talk about it but i i really enjoyed the part of the book that talked about the history of china hmm. and the history of education in china i had never really strung it together in my mind that the education in china is this narrative that goes all the way back into the imperial times hmm. right and and that basically what i've heard you know through you know, I guess you could say propaganda, but generally what my parents have explained to me and what the Chinese, you know, government is trying to tell the world is that China is a great country, but it's always been the external Western influences have been the thing that has slowed us down. And this book actually pushes back against that quite a bit Mm -hmm. and makes the argument that no, actually 
China, by being very insulated from the outside world, by closing themselves off and having a very rigid education system, basically fell into disarray over hundreds of years. So mm. that by the time we get to the late 19th century, early 20th century, the country is ripe for being taken over by these foreign powers, right? Mm. If you go back a few hundred years before that, China is like near the cutting edge of the world in terms of science and technology and, and literature and everything. And a few hundred years from after that, it's now being taken apart. And, you know, it then has to go through this 20th century full of turmoil and then starts to right itself, not because the government is so effective as a command economy of telling everyone what to do and organize itself very well, but because the government took a step back under Deng Xiaoping and started to allow reforms to happen. Mm -hmm. And as I read this, I was like, wow, I thought I was getting a book about education, but this is actually a, pol a political book, right. right? And you kind of felt like, oh, it's, being, it's written by a dude who's in America, so he's definitely got this Western influence and he's a little bit fearless in what he's saying. But a lot of it rang pretty true. And I hadn't heard any of this before collated in this way. It's very interesting. I, I think people who want to understand China a little bit more or understand a different perspective of China, possibly, this is something worth reading. And I don't feel like he's going out of his way to slag China, right? He's actually, and he's, he's actually being very critical of Americans and the American idea that, that, that America wants to copy the Chinese system. And he's saying Chinese people don't like the system. Chinese government doesn't like the system, right? The Chinese government is shutting down tutorial schools in an attempt to reform the system. We shouldn't right. be copying them. It, it was very different than what I expected. Yeah, and I, I would agree with that, where I think it outlines that the government has tried in many attempts to kind of uh, change their system, well, however unsuccessfully. And I think that the recent ban, uh, I guess last October or so, when they, they put the ban on, on tutoring schools and, and trying mm -hmm. to alleviate some of the workload for their kids, uh, has just allowed more of that to, to go underground <laughs> because it still doesn't change the fact that uh, a lot of the, the kind of strong or, or high-level government jobs are the result of a test, right, and that uh, you have to get through in order to be put in, the, in those uh, positions, right? So I guess it's a systemic thing that needs to be changed, not with these kind of like uh, one little policy here and there. At the end of reading this thing, as a quick takeaway, do you, do you recommend this book to people to read? Like, I, I feel like I'm going to recommend it. I don't, just curious what your take on it is overall. Well, I, I would. Like, definitely out of all the books that we read, it's uh, one of the most uh, interesting ones. For, for me, I had always kind of understood most of the concepts that the other ones had. For me, is that entrepreneur versus employee model of learning that really kind of uh, opened my eyes to say, huh, yeah, mm -hmm. like what is the education system for, right? Is it for as an entrepreneur? Is it uh, employee-based? And having that that one kind of uh, concept was definitely made it worthwhile just for that. But all the other stuff was very uh, uh, mm -hmm. eye-opening and appealing to me as well. So I definitely would recommend the book as anybody interested in education, anybody interested in kind of the history of, of, of China, um, definitely for, for anyone interested in those topics. Likewise, I highly recommend it. I don't, it's, it's a breezy read actually compared to a lot of the other ones we've read and you learn a lot and it's not a topic that gets talked about a lot. So it's def there's something in here for most people, I feel. Now, last question about this book. It's not even really about this book. It's about our podcast as a whole. You know, mm. we're four books in, we said we would read 10 books this year. So we're getting there. Mm-hmm. And our question is, what is wrong with education? And we presume that there would be an answer to this question, or maybe there wouldn't be an answer. But the thing that I've discovered getting to this point is that I, I would have been okay that we don't have an answer, but I'm starting to wonder, are we even asking the correct question? Like, is this question inherently the wrong question to be asking, right? And my take on it is that we've read one book that told us, you know, weapons of mass instruction that told us we don't need schools at all. Right? We mm -hmm. essentially don't need teaching. We then read a book that explained to us that all math is taught in a way in the West that is basically wrong and we should change how we do it. We have now read a book about education in China and it tells us that, it's trying to tell us that the education system in China is far from perfect. We should not be mimicking it. It acknowledges that education system in the West is not great and urges us to invent, an, it actually closes with, let's invent a new system. Right. right. <laughs> and just kind of leaves it there. 
And we've also read a book about how education reform in America failed bitter, you know, failed miserably for a myriad of political reasons. Hmm. So it seems like education is a mess. You know, all these books seem to, you know, none of these books is contradicting each other, essentially. Education is a mess. But I wonder, are we asking the wrong question? Because are we looking at the problem too microscopically? Are we saying that education is something that can be fixed? If we just fix education, the world will be better. Like America will be better. Canada will be better if we fix the school system. Or is there something bigger that's fundamentally wrong with Canada, with China, with with the United States? And that if we don't fix that thing, we can do all we want to the education system. This isn't going to go anywhere, right? And it, it, you know, it made me think about the human body, right? Like, let's say you wheel in like a 90 year old who's got 20 different medical conditions. And then you and I look at the guy's fingernail and we say, something's wrong with that fingernail. It doesn't look right. It's a little crooked. So let's do 10 podcast episodes and read 10 books about fingernails. We'll get to the bottom of what's wrong with that fingernail. We kind of miss the point. The guy's 90. He's got multiple issues with the rest of his body. And we're not dealing with that. We're obsessed with this fingernail. Is, are we asking the wrong question? What do you think? Well, for me, I wanted to tease apart some of the, like the, the, the taxonomy that we talk about. So when, when we say what's wrong with education, I'd probably refer to it as what's wrong with the uh, school system in the sense that um, one of my favorite quotes is, is a Mark Twain quote that says, don't let school get in the way of education. Right. Mm. So so sc- the school system, I think, has a lot to, to go through uh, and a lot of improvements that can be made, whatever Eastern, Western or whatever uh, private or, or non that needs to be adjusted. Right. Um, but education, um, I, I find uh, in terms of being able to learn skills that allow you to function uh, within um society and, and not just function to thrive right so if we talk about things like those those soft skills are those fundamental pieces of of education that i think aren't needed right which we we kind of alluded to that it's actually not part of the the normal school system right if we in had any an country. Edu- in, in any country so if we had an education a school system that taught those at first i think uh that's probably one answer to what's wrong with it we're not teaching any of that stuff now Another question is, is that the role of school? Like you would, I, I've uh, talked to other folks where, isn't that the role of parents? Right? Isn't that the role of the, the community and the family to teach um, like your, your, your child, like social skills, time management and, and empathy and things like that, right? Is, it, is, it the, is that the purpose of school to, to begin with, right? So uh, I think education um, in, in that route where, where it's like the teaching of those soft skills, um, that it still needs to be done. So maybe you're right. It's not the, what's wrong with the school system. What's wrong with um, like how we educate or, or transfer the knowledge of, of those kind of basic soft skills. I, I actually don't like the term soft skills. Um, Simon Sinek calls them human skills where it's they're not soft. They're not optional. There are things that everybody needs. Uh, and I think that uh, being able to teach those whether it's through parents, through schooling, through community work, through whatever it is, uh, that I think is, is probably what's what's missing. So, yeah, maybe we are asking the wrong question if we're focusing on the, the school system, um, because maybe we have to point to, um, like myself as a parent, maybe I'm the one that needs to be teaching my kid all of the mm-hmm. empathy and social skills and time management and all the stuff that I say should be in the school system, um, or, or, or maybe not. Maybe, maybe it's some, something else that needs to be uh, put in. Right. So I don't know. What are your what are your thoughts or comments on that? I am a little bit wondering if we're missing the point in terms of there's this bigger problem. Right. And the bigger problem is something to do with inequality, I think. Right. Like the book harps on this at times. Mm. Right. And so or, or the or all the books have kind of touched on this at times. And I wonder if it's kind of like the healthcare debate, right? We can spend a lot of time talking about the cost of the healthcare system and ways to deliver care more effectively. But at some level, you know, poverty in society, the fact that there are a lot of people who have a lot of socioeconomic factors that point towards them not being able to get a good education, right? Like, you know, their family structure has broken down. They're living in you know, a drug infested neighborhood. They don't have parents who are role models. There are no role models around. These things may be part of this bigger picture, you know, and the school system and the education is just one small part of this problem. We've kind of let society run itself into this rut. And now we're just microscopically looking at school as something that we can maybe try to remedy. 
but maybe we can't remedy it until we remedy the whole thing. Now is is the purpose of the school system to do it like um, equitably, right? And uh, equality and, equi- and, and equity and all that sort of stuff, right? So that everyone has the same chance, right? Is that the purpose of, of the school system? Maybe, right? And and it goes back to, to your point, like the, the, the challenge is inequality, right? Uh, maybe that is the, the, the crux of the problem um, to, to solve it in a different way. I don't know. Sounds like something we need to read about in the second <laughs> half of our series is what it sounds like. Sounds like for sure. Luki has been harping about the Nordic education system and this is a system I know nothing about, but it's supposedly fantastic. So we really have to get there. So for book five of what is wrong with education, we're going to be reading In Teachers We Trust, The Finnish Way to World-Class Schools by Pazi Salberg. Yeah, I'm excited to hear about that because, again, I've always heard, similar to the uh, Chinese system, I've heard a whole bunch of different rumors. So to be able to actually get a little more of an accurate recount, I think will be quite interesting. So I'm looking forward to this one. All right, I'm, I'm just going to close us out with a quote to uh, take us home. This has been a very interesting conversation, Luki. Enjoyed it as always. Oh, always love these. <laughs> the Chinese do indeed value education, but out of necessity, not out of choice. Valuing, valuing education is simply a survival strategy. It evolved to cope with an authoritarian system that had instilled a very narrow definition of success. There is only one heaven, and education is the only way to get there. <laughs>